Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about cervical cancer screening with Dr. Masood Azodi. Dr. Azodi is Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. And here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. How about we start, Masood, by talking a little bit about cervical cancer in general. How common is it, and should women really be worried about this disease? Yes, definitely they need to be worried about it because it can be a significant disease. But cervical cancer has a great the reduction in the number. Since about the last 30 years, the number of cervical cancer dropped by at least 50% in the United States. And all the credit goes really to the screening. We have excellent screening in this country. And uh, if you look at the urine cancer, we have about 35,000 cases a year. Ovarian cancer, about 25,000. But cervical cancer, only about 13,000. Mm. A still significant number. And that drop is really due to good screening program that we have here. And when you look at the other country, worldwide, we still about half a million cases of cervical cancer. And it doesn't take the, it really gives a great credit to the screening program that we have here. Go ahead, please. So, so, so tell us a little bit about screening, because, you know, in a lot of malignancies, breast, colon, prostate, a lot of the guidelines have changed. So what's the deal with cervical cancer screening now? How often should women be screened and with what? Yes, absolutely. Cervical, cervix is a nice organ to be screened because it's external organ in the vagina can be screened and the pap smear has been the mainstay of this screening. But you're right, it's absolutely has changed a lot because the number of pap smear has dropped significantly because doing pap smear, a lot of time we get abnormal pap smear, creates a lot of stress and the worrying in the ladies and the, and we probably get over-treatment because of the abnormal pap smear. To decrease the over-treatment and also when you look at cervical cancer, is really you need the HPV, human papillomavirus infection to develop cervical cancer in 99.9% of our cervical cancers. Therefore, it's a screening with the pap smear and also HPV screening has become a big thing now. And we have decreased the interval rather than doing every year. Now we, we do it at age 21. We do it every three years as long as pap smear is normal. In the old days, we used to start the pap smear at age 18 and or whenever the woman becomes sexually active. That's completely changed. doesn't matter about the sexual activity. starts at age 21, unless there is other risk factors. In the average risk woman, pap smear starts at age 21, regardless of their sexual activity. And it's done every three years. And after age 30, they can actually add a HPV screening. If they are HPV negative and the pap smear negative, they can do it every five year screening. And the screening at this point stops at age 70s and then doesn't continue unless there's other reasons. But actually there are new things that we could actually use HPV screening alone that can be started at age 26. That's a newcomer. This has not been the standard, but that's something that in future may be changed that we would not be talking about pap smear, we were talking about HPV screening. And so the HPV screen, is that a blood test? 
Uh, no, it's a pap smear test. They do a smear of the, basically at this point we do what they call liquid cytology, which can be used for the screening the infection and also screening HPV, which is considered to be a basically viral infection and can be used. But it's still a smear of the cervix at once and they use it either just HPV alone or they can use it as a pap smear along with HPV testing at the same time. And so, you know, with with the whole concept of HPV, I suppose the other thing uh, in terms of cervical cancer that may have contributed to the reduction in risk is now the vaccine for HPV. Do you think that that has had an impact on incidence or is it too early still? It's very early, but you're right. You will, at expectation, that you will have a significant effect. In Australia, that uh, it is everybody gets vaccinated. The last three years have been everybody getting vaccinated and they they seem to have seen a reduction, but it is very early to say. And actually here only, at least it's not standard to vaccinate boys, it's only for girls. My opinion is boys and girls, they both should be vaccinated. But you're right, over time when the vaccination becomes more more common, then we would eventually see the reduction. And expectation is next 20 years, we should see a significant reduction. And so if, if HPV accounts for 99.9% of cervical cancers, if we vaccinate, if, if there was a program of universal vaccination, if everybody uh, got vaccinated, would that essentially mean that we wipe out cervical cancer altogether? No, unfortunately not, because we cannot vaccinate against all of the high-risk viruses. There are series of high-risk. HPV, there's two categories, low-risk virus and high-risk virus. Low-risk is not very significant, and they don't do much. Most of the time when the ladies or even men get infected by the virus, most of the time they get immune to it, and they just sit temporary, and they go away. When they become persistent virus, that's where we worry about precancerous changes or dysplasia. But the high-risk category, there's significant numbers of them. And we have three vaccinations. One of them is what they call bivalent, which only vaccinated against HPV 16 and 18, which about 60% of our cervical cancer caused by HPV 16 and 18. You're absolutely right. They probably would not eliminate, decrease significantly number of cervical cancer that caused by HPV 16 and 18. But the new vaccine, actually, we have a quarter of and that comes 16 and 18 and also low risk for the warts and stuff. But the new vaccine is a nine virus. They have seven high risk viruses and two low risk, which causes the vulvar condyloma and warts, which would prevent that hopefully. But yes, the, the expectation is about 70 to 80 percent of cervical cancer that caused by a high risk virus, they will be vaccinated. But still, we would have about 20 percent of our cancer that high other risk, high risk viruses that we are not vaccinating. But there are some expectations, some study that believe that they could have cross reactivity. Maybe you are right, eventually would decrease all of the high risk viruses. But specifically, we will have other cancers that would be other high-risk viruses that we are actually not giving vaccine against it. At least we don't have it. So in that circumstance, if people have been vaccinated against HPV, should they still be screened with an HPV test? Or because, because hopefully they never get HPV because they've now been vaccinated at least against the high-risk viruses? Or is pap smear still going to be important uh, to look for dysplastic changes? At this point, the screening should stay the same as a standard, regardless of the vaccination status, because vaccination 
the best age that least recommended between age 9 to 26, but best time to give is between 11 to 13. That's the best time for the children because they haven't had any sexual contact and also best time for immune maturity, at least that's what is believed. But I have to tell you, a lot of people probably have already exposure before the vaccination. That's, uh, you're right, if everybody gets vaccination at age, very young age and universal, uh, do we still need the screening? I think that needs to be seen, but currently, regardless of the vaccination, you still need the screening program. And the standard is pap smear every three years or pap smear and HPV testing after age 30 and every five years. But the HPV screening alone, it has not become standard, but it may become in future. And the HPV screening, does that include all of the viruses or just 16 and 18? So if you've been vaccinated and the and the uh, the HPV testing only looks for 16 and 18, then it's not going to find it. No, absolutely right. They're at this point, that uh, they can just screen against all the HPVs, which is not useful. They screen against high-risk high risk I HPV. See, they be as a group high-risk. Then you can subcategorize. Yes, if somebody has a HPV screening alone and that's positive for high-risk, and if it's persistent, we know they are in high-risk of cervical dysplasia. Those people you could do it with colposcopy or pap smear, or you could break and do a subspecific subtype and find if they're HPV 16 or 18 because we know HPV 16, 18 has a higher risk of cancer. We would watch them more closely. And the screening doesn't mean they stay all with HPV screening. It's just decrease the number of screening. Once they have persistent HPV, they still would need a pap smear. They'll still need a colposcopy to actually see, make sure they don't have lesion. Having HPV doesn't per se mean somebody would develop lesions. The risk of the lesion, when you look at general HPV, about 80 to 90% of them, they get immune to it. About 10% have persistent. And from them, only few gets dysplasia. And we understand that if you have a high-risk HPV persistent, then some of them, significant number of them, will get dysplasia, not everybody. Then those are small category of population, just, just decreases the screening number to smaller number. And those people may need a pap smear or colposcopy at that time. Got it. So so the HPV screening test is really to see whether you've got HPV and whether that's persistent. And if it is persistent, then you need to have more aggressive pap smear. More, more aggressive screening. Screening. Yes. Or whatever needs to be done. Yes. Okay. And so tell me, how does, how does screening actually reduce the incidence then? Because, for example, in breast cancer, when we screen people, we find that the incidence goes up because we're actually finding more cancers. Whereas in cervical cancer, it's, it's not quite that way. You're finding cancers before they become cancers. This is actually ideal cancer to treat as a precancer because precancer of the cervix is very easily treatable and with the pap smear or whatever method they use and you find that you hopefully finding them in a very early stage before they become actually cancer. We call it precancer because they're still above the basement membrane or protective layer in our cells and they don't have the ability to metastasize and they can be treated locally by either ablation or cutting and it's still a procedure but very minimal procedure and you can actually treat the symptoms of virus which is precancerous and the virus itself taken care of by vaccination or the 
or the woman's own immune system. But what we're treating is the symptoms of viruses, precancers. And if we would, we would treat the precancer, we would prevent actual developing cancer. And that's really the goal of screening, is not to screen people, it's screen to prevent cancer. And it has been very effective because number of cervical cancer has dropped significantly. And most of the people in the United States that get cancer, and at least 50% of them has never had pap smear before or screening. Mm. And about 10% did not have a screening last five years. That means only about 40% of our cancer in the people that are actually getting screening, and most of them might not be adequate screening. That's why screening is really very effective because you do find them precancerous state and you do treat them locally. And you do treat a lot of people in precancerous to prevent few cancers, that's for sure. So tell us a little bit more about how precancerous lesions are treated with ablation or cutting you mentioned. Is that a surgical procedure? Is that like a general anesthetic or is this an office-based procedure? What, what do women go through when they're having precancerous lesions treated? Yeah. Assuming a woman has abnormal pap smear, obviously depending to the severity of the pap smear. If it's a low grade or something non-significant, they would probably just follow up with repeat pap smear or repeat HPV testing. Assuming it's something significant lesion in the pap smear, they would go undergo office simple procedure called colposcopy. It's a little longer than usual pelvic examination. They put a little very diluted vinegar solution in the cervix and they look under the magnifying glasses and magnifying microscope. And they look at it and they look at the entire area on the cervix and vagina to make sure there is no lesion. If there is no lesion, that would be great. They would be just observed. If there is a lesion, they will undergo office biopsy, which is which is painful, but not a significant pain. Does not require any anesthesia. And most ladies uh, tolerate very well with minimal pain. And then we get the results of biopsy. If the results of biopsy are, again, categorized as a low-grade dysplasia or precancerous or high-grade. If they're low-grade, we usually watch them, especially if they're in the younger ladies that we don't want to do a lot of treatment on the cervix. In the higher grade lesion, they usually need a local treatment. Local treatment can be what they call ablative. You could just burn it with the laser, or you could do what they call cry or freeze it, which we don't use as much, but still being used. And they both can be an office procedure, but usually laser this is done in the operating room with a little bit of sedation or, or even mild general anesthesia. It's about five to 10 minutes procedure. It's a very simple procedure. Or they could do excisional, which is either cone biopsy or leap that can be done. Leaps can be done in the office, but sometimes we do that still on the anesthesia and the sedation, but they're very quick procedure and the local procedure. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for kind of overviewing uh, cervical cancer screening. We're going to talk a lot more about that after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about cervical cancer with my guest, Dr. Masuda Zodi. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the United States and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment is an exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, cancer survivors can face several long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers to help keep cancer survivors focused on healthy living. The Survivorship Clinic at Yale Cancer Center focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. 
You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Masuda Zodi. We're talking about cervical cancer, and before the break, we talked a little bit about cervical cancer screening, which is so important and has really resulted in a reduction in cervical cancer rates in this country. And then we started talking about pre-cancers, which is really why cervical cancer rates have declined, because they are so easily treatable when found with screening programs. So Dr. Azodi, maybe we can pick up there and start talking a little bit about what happens when the screening actually finds more than a pre-cancer. Does it ever show a, an invasive cancer and what happens then? Yes. I guess we don't want to see invasive cancer, but unfortunately we do see it. And we have about 13,000 new cases of cervical cancer in the United States. And as I already mentioned, most of these people have not had a screening in the past, but there are some that they do get screened and they get cancer. We like to find them in pre-cancers and treat, as we mentioned, but we do become inv- when they become invasive, that's a different story, different ballgame. Uh, all of the pre-cancers treated by general gynecologists, and once become invasive cancer, they got referred to gynecological oncologist, which that's my specialty. We do treat cancer of women except breast cancer. And uh, once they become invasive, that means they have a potential to metastasize, potential to leave the local area, and potentially actually can cause severe morbidity for the patient and even mortality. The treatment is based on the stage of the disease. We would basically stage them. Either they are very early, microscopic stage one, which is great, and you can treat them with uh, just a cone biopsy, and uh, if they still would like to carry a child and they still want to keep their reproductive potential, they can still maintain it and be observed very close. But if they are, let's say, still not above the microscopic and they are two centimeter or less, if actually, and they are still in reproductive age and they have a desire to have children, there is a procedure called radical trochlectomy. Then we actually do a radical surgery, remove the bottom part of the uterus, which is the bottleneck of the uterus as cervix. We take that with some parametrial tissue, which is a tissue around the cervix, and we do a lymph node dissection. As long as we get a good margin and we get the lymph nodes negative, they can potentially preserve their uterus, still carry a child in future, Definitely, it will be high-risk pregnancy, which that's a different topic that we can talk about, but they can still maintain the potential. That's very important to know for the reproductive age group, and uh, almost all of the obstetrician gynecologists in Connecticut are aware of that procedure. That will be for the early cancer that still want to maintain their reproductive potential and want to carry a child in future. So, but can they have a vaginal delivery after that? No. Once you do that, then you usually put what they call circulage that would maintains the baby within the uterus when they get pregnant. They do have a high risk of miscarriage, mm. significantly higher than general population, but they do still have baby and carry a child, and but they will have C-section with their deliveries, absolutely. Now, assuming they do invasive cancer and the visible lesion, and they're not interested in future fertility or they pass the fertility age, and those people usually have what they call radical hysterectomy, and that would be the uterus, cervix, and the parametrium comes with it, and they still preserve the ovaries for their hormonal status, and we do lymph node dissection, and this can be done laparoscopically or with incision, and nowadays everything usually we like to do it minimally invasive, and our specialty as Yale is really we do most of a minimally invasive with the laparoscope or robotic surgery, and if we can get a good surgery and good margins, they can have a good survival 
survival, and uh, we still would follow it very closely, but they would not be able to carry a child because uterus is gone. But it is more advanced. Unfortunately, we do see some more advanced cervical cancer in the Connecticut. Most of these people are the migrants or people that really had not had screening for a long time, or they actually, some of them ignored the symptoms because they do have abnormal bleeding, sometimes bleeding after sexual activity, intercourse, postcoital bleeding. And those are usually, they in early time, they do have some symptoms. Either they missed or however they become advanced and surgery is not an option. They get treated with the radiation and chemotherapy combination. As long as they're local disease, they can still be treated effectively, and people still do well, have acceptable quality life, and with the decreased chance of recurrence. Unfortunately, become very advanced and become metastatic. That means they travel outside the local area in the pelvis. Then, the, then we need the systemic therapy with chemotherapy and prognosis becomes significantly worse because we really cannot treat them locally, we just need to treat them systemically. And in the early cancer, as I talked, surgery is a mainstay, but if somebody's not a good surgical candidate, chemotherapy radiation can also substitute surgery in early cancers also. So, so that's interesting, right? So first of all, who would not be a surgical candidate aside from comorbidities? Um, is there are there certain uh, criteria of the tumor itself that make it unresectable, yeah. such that you you opt for chemotherapy and radiation? Yes, depending first of all to stage of the tumor, which is clinically staged, the size of the tumor, and also we get a chest X-ray usually make sure no metastasis with chest, and also an examination is it traveling behind the cervix or it is within the cervix, what we call parameter. That means a space between the cervix and the pelvis. If there is a tumor in it, that's really not a good surgical candidate. Once they become to the stage that surgery by itself cannot cure it, and then we, we just up to just do chemotherapy radiation. Even if you're resecting the parametrium? Yes. And uh, if the tumor is big size, then I cannot get a good margin. Or if the lymph nodes are positive, that I know they're going to need radiation regardless, it's probably a better option to just leave everything alone and treat with chemotherapy radiation because we know that chemotherapy radiation can be as effective as surgery. The reason for surgery is a, is a basically more rapid treatment and also you eliminating the side effects of radiation if we don't need to. So let me get this straight. If you've got an early stage breast cancer, uh, an early stage cervical cancer, all of our listeners know where my head generally <laughs> is. Um, if you've got an early stage cervical cancer, um, I mean, I don't know too many women who love to go under the knife. So, and if if chemotherapy and radiation is equivalent to surgery, do you find women saying no thank you to surgery or does surgery uh, entail a better prognosis? No, not definitely better prognosis. It's, uh, surgery is a better quality life long term because radiation has a more local effect on the bladder and the rectum, a risk of long-term effect on the sexual activity and the bladder function, and also risk of bowel obstruction future. And yes, there are some that opt to do chemotherapy radiation, but most younger people opt to go surgery. Which, which leads me to, you know, let's suppose somebody presents and you think clinically they're fairly localized and you do surgery. And at the time of your surgery, that's when you're really taking out the lymph nodes. Yes. 
And so if the lymph nodes are involved, then what? It, at least at Yale, if the lymph nodes are involved, we stop the surgery. There are some places in the country they will still continue with radical surgery, and they believe is that we give them a better local control. But our practice and most places the practice is that if the lymph nodes are positive, and you would know that the person would require radiation regardless, and we would stop it. And we would not do the hysterectomy, and we would stop the procedure, and they would basically they would not delay their ultimate treatment, which would be radiation, and the morbidity of combination would be higher than just the morbidity of radiation alone at that point. And so, so you check the lymph nodes during the operation with a frozen section or correct, something? Correct, correct. So if the lymph nodes are involved, does that mean that they need radiation or does that mean that they need chemotherapy as well? Radiation for sure, but there are studies that confirm that the combination of chemotherapy during radiation, which is only about four weeks, once a week chemotherapy, low-dose chemotherapy, some systemic effect, but we're looking at basically potentiating the radiation therapy effect. That's really not a significant side effect, but makes the radiation more effective. Usually at this point, when the, when the person needs the radiation for cervical cancer, 90% of the time we do have chemotherapy giving along with it at that four to five weeks. And so what about the people who have surgery alone? You, you do your surgery, you've got a node negative, uh, fairly small, but invasive cancer. Now, a lot of our listeners know that invasive cancers, as you say, have passed the basement membrane, so they have access to blood vessels and lymph vessels. In those patients, do you ever give chemotherapy as well for the micrometastatic spread that might ensue? No. If the margins are positive, which hopefully not, if the lymph nodes are positive, or if, let's say, the parametrium, the tissue around that we took, they're positive, that means tumors left the cervical area, those people would require radiation, plus minus chemotherapy. But if the margins are negative, parametrium is negative, lymph nodes negative, and there is no other metastatic disease, then the radiation becomes only in few people if they have other high-risk factors. That would be about only probably about 20% of those people if they have a deep invasion to the cervix or if they have a large tumor. But about 80 to 70, 80% of them would not require any other treatment. And those people have excellent prognosis and they do a very good long term. So they don't need chemotherapy? Most of them would not need if they have a good margins and a small tumor, yes. So the only people who really need chemotherapy, um, aside from potentiating the radiation, are people with metastatic disease. Metastatic disease would need systemic therapy or recurrent disease, they would need that. And so talk a little bit about what happens in the metastatic setting and in the recurrent setting. Yes. Um, how is that treated? Yes. That depends, again, where it's coming back. If it's coming back locally, and that means you've done the chemotherapy, you've done radiation, we usually wait about three months to make sure the full effect of radiation there and the, they get because radiation could still potentiate tumor death for a while. Let's say after six months or a year or so, I find my patient has a recurrent disease. At that point, it depends where the recurrence is. Let's say recurrence is in the lung, that's a metastatic disease. At that point, really, systemic therapy is an option, which would be chemotherapy. And we have all kinds of standard therapy, protocols therapy. There are few people that have isolated recurrences, very rare. We may still resect that, but that's extremely rare. But as a general rule, if they have metastatic disease outside the local area, they will require systemic therapy. But uh, a lot of time, there would be just a local recurrence. If the local recurrence with no metastatic disease, they do have an option of surgical resection. That mm. would be what they call pel pelvic exenteration, which is a big surgery. We remove the bladder, 
rectum and the vagina and uterus, everything all in one unit. Wow. And that's still, if it's a localized disease, they can get cured out of that one. That's only for recurrence in the local disease. Wow. And so so after people have had their their uh, either uh, a radical trachelectomy or after they've had radiation and chemotherapy for a small uh, potentially curative uh, resection for a cervical cancer that's small, do they need to continue to have screening? Yes. Uh, once you have a cancer, uh, most of our gynecologic cancer, we do follow them. And uh, most of the time of the recurrence, usually first two years after completion of therapy, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, everything, depending what the treatment is, chemotherapy, nothing. Uh, after the treatment could be just surgery alone, as you said, early cancer. We do watch them first two years very closely, depending to the risk of recurrence. Every two or three months, first year, every three or four months, second year. After two years, risk of recurrence drops significantly. Then we change the appointments to every four to six months for the five years. And usually 95% of our recurrences happens within five years. If somebody doesn't recur after five years of completion of our treatment, still the chance of recurrence is there, but significantly drops. Then at that point, we interval gets very prolonged, about a year or so. Dr. Masood Azodi is Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.